he's not in this to fight for rights. Mm -hmm. Um, he's not in this to kind of stake a claim and, and fight for it. He's in it out of a desire to see the gospel spread, uh, across his city and across China. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. We all fall into routines, don't we? Habits, ways of going about our days and our lives, not good, not bad, just normal. That's just the way that we do it, the way that we see the world. Inevitably, something happens that shakes up the way we see things. We may meet someone new. We may change jobs. We might have a child. We might lose a family member. And we are shaken out of our routines and our habits. In our world today, we can get very comfortable living for ourselves, thinking that this is just the way the world is, this is how I am to live, but God comes along and has a way of shattering our expectations and showing us a different way, his way. But have you ever noticed that sometimes, even after coming to faith in Jesus, things get stale? I know, that sounds horrible, right? That We fall into these routines and, and think we have it all together, but at the same time, we feel that something is missing. Now, notice I didn't say that God gets stale. He doesn't. But our conception of him, the way we go about interacting with him, can be. But this is why at Apollos Watered, we are committed to hearing from the church around the world as much as we want to help the church around the world. Sometimes it's that jolt that our brothers and sisters from Africa or Latin America or Asia can give us that's really, really important and needed. It just shocks us out of our blandness. It shocks us out of the status quo and brings us into a new experience, a new encounter with who God is and how he is working in the world. Last week, we spoke with Sam George about his faith as an Indian believer in Jesus. We learned that his Faith history goes back an incredible amount of time. I mean, all the way back to the 12th century. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Who do you know whose family history goes back that far? Just even knowing the family history, but knowing that you have a faith family history going back that far is absolutely wonderful. This week, though, we are starting a conversation with Hannah Nation about the house church in China and Wang Yi a jailed pastor in China. Hannah compiled and edited a bunch of Wang Yi's writings, which he wanted to be translated into English. And what I found as I read this book, Faithful Disobedience, was a man of fierce conviction and a heart for the gospel. As a matter of fact, it enlivened me. It challenged me to be greater, to be more bold. Because frankly, I think that many of us in the West have been lulled to sleep by the carbon monoxide of culture. And this is a man who shakes us out of our slumber because he has important things to teach the church here where we're at. By looking at his life and his faith in his situation, I am challenged to take a greater stance for Jesus in mine. It is an absolutely fascinating and convicting 
conversation. So buckle up and let's hear Hannah Nation. But before we get to Hannah, quick plug. We are able to have conversations like this one because of listeners and supporters like you who have a wholly discontent with the status quo and want to go deeper, who long to make a difference where they are. That's why you listen to this show. You have a hunger, a desire to make a difference, to grow in your relationship with Jesus and to see others do the same. We are a listener-supported ministry, and we can't do this without your help. Go to apolloswater.org, click the Support Us button, and without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Hannah Nation. Happy listening. Hannah Nation, welcome to Apollo's Water. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So you know the drill. I've told you about the Fast Five. Are you ready for the Fast Five? I don't know. (laughs) I guess so. I guess I'm ready. (laughs) All right. Here's the first one. When I travel, the item I need most is? A phone charger. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's a generic. Everyone needs that. Unless you're honest. Okay. 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 Give me another one. The item I need most, um, a good book. Oh. Whether I will read it or not, I don't know. <laughs> but I will always have it with me. So. That's good. That's good. Cultivate good reading habits. That's good. Okay. I'm going to assume this one and forgive me if I assume wrong, but I'm going to do this the first time I've ever asked this question. The best LaCroix flavor is and why? Lemon. And why? Just because it's cleansing? Yeah. It's just like simple. It's refreshing. It's not weird. It's I thought I was ordering ordering lemon and it was like pomelo or or it was like no, it was like <laughs> lemoncello or something. And I was just like this is not like it was like weird tasting and <laughs> I just wanted my lemon. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't go for the lemoncello. Go for lemon. Oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not I just had one just like the other day. It's not that no, bad. No, not my uh, first one. I'll disagree with you on that. (laughs) You know, what's funny is my wife is the one who started buying all LaCroix and she bought it because she didn't think any of us would drink it. Because that's like, you know, if you're a mom, you buy stuff that, you know, everybody starts eating it. And so she she started doing that. And then we all started drinking it. And she's like, I have to find a different drink that no one else will drink. Our battle right now. I have a five year old and a three year old. And they always want to have sparkling water when we have sparkling water, but they insist on having it from the can. They do not want it poured into glasses, but they will never finish one. (laughs) So we're always trying to figure out how to convince them to let us just split one between them. But you know, this, the fun of it is having your own can. So (laughs) it is, but it's, it's the not fun of having to clean it up around the house. Cause my kids don't ever finish them. (laughs) Never finish them. Okay. Here we go. Number three. If I were a style of house, I would be what and why anything with a big front porch. Oh, so you like people you like to have people. I like, yeah, I grew up with a front porch. And I'm a big believer in it. It's a good, like, I feel like they're very welcoming. Like they're really great for just sitting and hanging out. I also prefer them to like back decks because 
it kind of makes the socializing visible on the street and you see your neighbors as they're going about their day and everything. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of front porches. So is my wife, but you can't find them very much anymore. I know it's really sad. It's really, really sad. Actually, anytime I see new construction with front porches, I'm like, yay, go (laughs) build more front porches. (laughs) Okay. Question number four, funniest cross-cultural experience is what? What happened? Oh, it's a long story. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. So, um, I lived in China for two years and my roommate and I wanted to play a practical joke (laughs) on, um, one of our teammates and, you know, they have these big outdoor markets and they sold ducks. They sold ducks, live ducks at these markets. And so our idea was that we were going to buy a duck and we were going to give it to Ryan. Like we had a key to his apartment and we were just going to leave it on his porch and he would come home and there would be this duck and it would be this really funny event and everyone would have a good laugh because he'd have a duck. And what do you do with a duck? You know? (laughs) And so the, the like perfect day came and we thought this is our moment. We had the whole thing planned out and my roommate Talia went to the market bought the duck. I was waiting by the apartment complex and she, I see her walking up and she just kind of has this funny look on her face. And we were just, I kind of looked at her. I was like, everything okay. And she's like, yeah, I think so. And so we went upstairs and we got into um, his apartment onto the balcony and we like kind of shake the duck out of the bag and it just sits there like it doesn't move or anything and and we're like well maybe the duck's a little stunned like maybe like it's a little shocked it doesn't know why it's here (laughs) and um so long story short we had we could see this balcony from our apartment and we like watch for hours and this duck didn't move at all and we were like we put a, a dead duck on Ryan's balcony. He's going to hate us. And he comes home, he goes out there. We see him like, look at the duck and then pick it up. And then we like, don't know what's happening. And we're just like, we have to run over there and apologize. So we, you know, probably 10, 15 minutes pass. We get down to the bottom and he's standing there. We're like, we are so sorry. Like we didn't mean to put a dead duck on your apartment balcony. And he's just laughing. And he's like, well, it wasn't dead. The legs were broken and it had just been like sitting there with broke. I know it's really, really sad, but apparently at the market, they assume you're going to take it home and eat it. And so they go, they do the service for you of breaking the legs first. And so, but anyways, he said he came down and he didn't know what to do with this duck with broken legs. And he was just standing there. (laughs) This old woman walked up to him and was like, are you going to eat that? And he was like, no, I don't know what to do with this. And she was like, I'll take it. And so he just like handed over the duck to her. And that is our story of how we thought we were going to play a really good practical joke on someone, but not knowing how the markets work in China, we ended up putting a somewhat dying broken leg duck on this porch. But it turned out 
because a very sweet old Chinese grandma got a duck for, for a dinner duck. that night. A free duck for dinner that night. So. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, that's, it was a weird that's... story. It was a weird day. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's immortalized forever. Yeah. 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 Now now the whole internet gets to hear about our weird <laughs> duck experience. Duck experience. But those are the stories that help make life interesting. You know, oh, the things sure. you didn't so I, just as funny, I have, I can't, I don't know if you can see behind me, but I have these little tractors that my, my father was a mechanic, a diesel mechanic. And, and uh, one year I come up into my office as a pastor and there are these pictures like, you know, how I used to go and get them developed and, and they would be, they were sitting there and they, it, there's note and it says, dear Travis, I couldn't take it any longer. I had to go on vacation. And, and it's, some one of my students had taken my tractor and traveled around the United States oh taking photos oh. of the tractor. And it was like commentary. It was like, yeah. this is me at the Grand Canyon. And this is yeah, me in four states. Like, it was so funny. You know, those kind of practical jokes I'm all for. The, those yeah. are the ones that are like, that's that's well, funny. when they that's work funny. out. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's the problem when they don't work out. Yeah, it doesn't go over it very well. It would have been well. a better story if we had had a live duck waddling around his uh, balcony. <sighs> for the whole day <laughs> this dead duck with broken legs poor duck <laughs> I know. okay num number five if i were a store the store i would be is what and why i don't know i'd probably either be a bookstore or i'd be like a travel agency why don't you do both? Okay. <laughs> bookstore and travel yeah. agency. <laughs> <laughs> Two oh. dying things, travel agencies oh, yeah. and bookstores. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I like that though. Yeah, that's right. You don't see too many travel agencies anymore, no, do you? I know. I know. I'm sure they're probably still out there. They probably just moved online more, but um yeah i mean i feel like when i was a kid you'd you'd walk by them all the time and yeah. you don't really see them anymore so. the, and the bookstores that makes me super sad I know. when i see bookstores closed that doesn't make I me know. sad it's like front porches they need to be brought back they do they do they do well speaking of books let's talk about your book now it's, it's a very full cover and I've, you can see, it's been a lot of reading. Actually, one of the pages fell out. So no. I was, I'm like serious. I am so serious about this book. I've got notes all over it. I am out. I am, I'm down. That's incredible. I am committed. I am committed to this book because I, I saw the cover and it, and it struck me at first going, okay, this is a very interesting cover. And, and I couldn't figure out though, who wrote it? Because it says Wang Yi and others. And then it's like, well, Wang Yi's in prison. And I'm like, yeah. wait. Well, who wrote it? And then it had you edit it and JT, Eddie, how do you, how do you say it? Sing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sing. Okay. Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. I know that many in our audience are going to probably wonder why are we talking about this and why is this such a, a big important, such of importance, but it really is because we see what's going on in the global church. We've heard a lot and I know just our, our normal churchgoer has heard about the church exploding in China, but it's a whole lot more. Than mm -hmm. that. So let's let's jump down into this. Let's talk about the Chinese House Church for a moment. What is that? Because you are the head of the Center for House Church Theology. So let's talk about what those two things are for a moment, why they're important. Well, the house churches in China have existed since the 1950s when the communists came to power. And you know, I think from probably most people 
they've heard something about a house church in China. But I think for a lot of us, our, you know, what it is and, and what it means is kind of hazy or kind of murky. I think, you know, before I got involved with all of this, I definitely would have thought of house churches as, you know, hiding in small little, you know, apartments and trying to make sure people don't know they're there. And that is part of the house church's history. I'd say there have been stretches in the history of the house church where that's been true. But that is not necessarily always the case today. The house church is a lot more complex than that. It's a lot larger than that. And um, most Christians in China today are part of house churches. So maybe maybe a, a quick history lesson. Yeah, no, let's do <laughs> um, it. Let's do it. Yeah, because sometimes that's helpful. You know, essentially, Protestant Christianity has been in China for uh, a lot longer than people might think. The first missionaries went into China in the um, 19th century. In the first half of the 20th century, there actually were pretty significant revivals taking place across China and a lot of growth in the Protestant churches across China. Even before the communists took over, a lot of those churches were very familiar with suffering and very familiar with persecution and hardship because in the first part of the 20th century, Japan was aggressively, you know, at war in China, taking over large parts of China. And the Japanese were, were pretty harsh to churches in their territory. And then, of course, you had World War II. And immediately following World War II, you had the communist revolution. And so a lot of those churches from the early, early 20th century more or less went straight into the conflicts with the communist state. For a lot of them, though, it didn't necessarily feel like something new because they'd already been dealing with conflict with authorities with Japan and with other rulers in China. But the communists, I think one of the biggest um, misconceptions that people have about Christianity in China is thinking that the communists at all times in their history of power in China have wanted to eradicate all religious belief in China. That's something that I think kind of in America, we think, you know, oh, the com all the communists, I want to get rid of all religious belief or faith in God. And that's really not always been true. When they first came to power, the Chinese Communist Party did not insist on closing all churches or ending all religious practice. What they wanted was to ensure that all churches and all religious practice in China was submissive to the communist state. And you know, able to communicate their allegiance to this new government. And so they started a state church, which has a name, which I think usually strikes a lot of English speakers as kind of a, a odd name. It's called the Three Self Patriotic Movement. It's less odd sounding in Chinese, but basically this is just a state church. It's a church that ultimately 
comes under the authority of uh, the government and the, the Chinese Communist Party. And the kind of ask was very simple. The ask was that all Christians in China and all churches in China participate in this state church. And what created the house churches was that roughly half of the Christians across China refused to enter the state church. They refused to participate in it. And essentially their argument was that only Christ is the head of the church and they couldn't accept a, a state, you know, political authority over the church's life in China. In the opening decades of the Chinese Communist Party, there was a lot of persecution of the church, a lot of very harsh persecution that lasted basically into the 80s. But the church really persevered through all of that. And then in the, in the 80s and certainly 90s and early 2000s, when China began to open up and a lot of these restrictions relaxed, there was just this huge revival, um, a massive revival across China. And so today, you know, estimates are, it, it depends on whose research you read. The more conservative estimates are that there are 80 million Christians across China. Bolder estimates put it well above 100 million which is huge. I mean, that's a huge mm -hmm. number of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's also a significant percentage of the Chinese population at this point. And so it's a church that we really ought to know more about and ought to pay more attention to just numerically on one level. But what they're saying and what they're thinking about and what they're writing, I think, adds to that, that need to hear what they're saying. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. I don't think that many... Many people are familiar with what is going on. They don't understand how the government is trying to take over the church and create their own church in the process. Mm -hmm. So that's really one of the, that's really the issue that's at the core with Wang Yi, as I've read, and we're going to get into him in just a moment, is because the government wants to place itself above the church and wants to direct and appoint pastors and bishops. Even when I was reading about how we read within Roman Catholicism, about how Pope Francis is now they've they've really brought back ties together, but there's still bishops that 
the government is appointed that he's now recognizing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is crazy yep. yeah. to think about. Really, it's crazy to think about. This yeah. just shows how powerful they are. So so we've well, talked a little bit about. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, you know, kind of the meat of the question from the early days of the house church, because I think it can be easy for us to say, oh, you know, how could any Christian ally themselves with the Communist Party? One of the things that I I find very interesting about that whole time period was that I think a lot of the motivation from the early guys who allied with the Communist Party was they felt like that was the only way for the church to survive. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a really important question in there of, you know, if you were in a position where you thought the only way for the church to survive would be to ally myself or compromise in terms of the who's at the head of the church, you know, would you do it? <laughs> or mm. would you trust that it's the Holy Spirit who keeps the church alive, no matter what the circumstances and refuse that, that allyship, you know? And I think that that's where, you know, it's, I, I highlight that because I think we often think like, oh, we, we would never ally with the Communist Party, you know. But if you thought that was the only way to keep the church alive, you might be tempted to do so, you know. Well, and so I, that's where I, your, your understanding of the church and what makes the church is really, really important. Well, I, I think you bring out a very good point because honestly, I'm not sure if any of us in the West could even conceive of that, because for many of us, we've been birthed into an environment of individual rights, of individual mm-hmm. expression, of freedom. We've not had this oppression. We might approach it in a very patriotic way, an independent way. But when your every aspect of your livelihood is being threatened, the loss of job, and and I say this now because people are not speaking out on a variety of issues in the West because of fear of litigation, loss mm-hmm. of job, being mm-hmm. canceled in the culture. It, there is an aspect of the persecution, but it's it's more of a soft rather than a hard persecution. Mm-hmm. And this is why I find the work and what the, the church, what's happening in the church in China is very interesting because on one level, it's a rebuke mm-hmm. to what I see going on in the West right now. And even reading Wang Yi's words, knowing this man is going to prison, it, 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 it had a very... Bonhoeffer ring to it and 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 how he went about it. But let, let's get to him. Let's talk about Wang Yi. Who yeah. is Wang Yi? Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. So he is probably one of the most well-known house church pastors in China today. He's, I would say, one of the few house church pastors with name recognition outside of China, for sure. And a lot of that was due to his arrest, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I think even before his arrest, a lot of people had some idea of who he was. And part of that is just, he's a very, very talented guy. So before he became a Christian, he was a human rights lawyer and scholar. And um, he was also a very avid writer. He was very active on the Chinese internet very active writing on various prominent blogs. And, um, you know, he had a pretty large social media following and he is a really gifted writer. Um, I think, you know, he's 
very winsome in his words. Um, he's, he's really, one of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to be as interesting a writer when you're translated as I think Mm. he is, you know? And so some, yeah, I think that the best writers are the people who are interesting to read whatever language you're reading them in. You know, there are a lot of people who in their own language are quite compelling. And when you translate them, it loses some of its vitality, you know, but he became a Christian later in life. He was already, you know, established as a a thinker in China um, when he became a Christian. I've tried to think of, uh, you know, what kind of a parallel would be. I think it would essentially be, you know, if, if some name, you know, someone who wrote for say the New York times, you know, became a Christian very publicly. That's essentially what it would be like, you know, and, and we haven't really seen that happen in the U S in a long time. So this is someone who, you know, was already a recognized thinker and and scholar and intellectual who became a Christian very quickly after he converted he began pastoring. He became a Christian essentially through his wife. She became a Christian first. And then they very quickly got involved in Christian ministry and he became a pastor. They are in Chengdu, which is Southwest China. So, you know, it's not on the coast in China. The coastal cities are really the kind of big prominent leading cities and the further west you go, uh, kind of the more it's, you know, <laughs> less, um, less elite, <laughs> you could say. Mm-hmm. But Chengdu is kind of the leading city in southwest China. If you like Sichuan food, that's where Chengdu is. All the good spicy food in China <laughs> comes from that area. Yeah, so they started a church called um, Early Rain. It had a few different variations of the name, but uh, its its official name now is Early Rain Covenant Church. And they were a very public house church. <laughs> so the, mm. they're everything that is not what we might imagine of a house church. Um, they met publicly. They were very prominent online. They, they really were not hidden or hiding in any way. And they sought to be very engaged in their city. I don't think I mentioned this anywhere in the book, but for example, one thing they would do is, is every Christmas, they would have a very large uh, Christmas concert, essentially, in a you know, large rented venue and invite anyone to come to it. And, um, yeah, they were, uh, they grew to be very large in 2018 when Wang Yi was arrested. They had, um, probably about 600 people attending and they had planted multiple churches across Chengdu. And they also were involved in starting a lot of different Christian education initiatives. So, you know, again, this is not a small hidden thing. This is a very socially and publicly engaged expression of the church in China. So as the book highlights, though, that of course created conflict. (laughs) That was a decision that they 
felt very led to, but it definitely created conflict with the governing authorities. And I think especially, you know, up until 2018, the trend had been increased openness for the churches in China. They were not the only church that large. There were, you know, several churches in coastal cities and places like Beijing or further south in, in southeast China that were lar- just that large or even larger. And it had seemed like that was going to be the continued trajectory for the house churches. There were several house churches that were trying to kind of broker a, a middle path with the government, basically trying to argue that you know, they could somehow register with the government without submitting to the state church, the three self church. But in 2018, at the beginning of 2018, a new set of religious regulations were began to be enforced. And this, you know, is ongoing today. And it basically has led to a pretty significant increase in persecution of house churches across China. And Wang Yi's arrest and the crackdown at early rain was a really significant sign that more a more difficult time for the churches was coming. It was kind of a big, you know, you could probably say it was a big show of power <laughs> on behalf of uh, the state. And it was a very uh, big event. Yeah, I don't know if you want me to go into the details of what happened. This is really good stuff because I, I still think some people are trying to fill in the blanks on on what's going on and why the church is being persecuted in China right now, especially after there had been so as you mentioned, their restrictions were lightning, they were opening. He comes along, public convert, very notable name, comes to faith in Jesus, and then becomes really outspoken against the government. What was the impetus behind him speaking out against the government so much? I'm sure part of it is just personality, <laughs> you know, Um Part of it is, you know, I think he's a thoughtful guy and he's was he was a a, a a public voice before even his conversion and even a public voice on matters that that touched on matters of the house church. Again, he was a human rights lawyer, so he came from a background of being pretty aware of a lot of the the dealings of the Communist Party in China and violations of of human rights issues in China. So, you know, I don't think he he dropped those interests after his conversion, for example. But I, I think, you know, he really believes that the church is the greatest gift that be, can be given to the city, mm-hmm. you know. And I think... This comes out a lot in the book, especially, you know, the closer you get to his arrest in the book, the more this just is on his heart. And so he talks about how when governments interfere with the church, that's a travesty, not because it, it you know, inflicts suffering or difficulty upon Christians or churches. It's a travesty because it limits 
those outside of the church from hearing the gospel and having access to the preaching of the word, you know? So I think that, you know, his motivation in speaking on these things is, you know, he's driven by a belief that what Chinese cities need are the church and anything that prevents the church from, from being able to serve their cities is a problem. (laughs) You know, it's a, it, it is a, a wrong that's being done against the population of China to prevent them from hearing about Jesus. Yeah. So I think he, he's very adamant in several places that he's not in this to fight for rights. Mm -hmm. Um, He's not in this to kind of stake a claim and, and fight for it. He's in it out of a desire to see the gospel spread uh, across his city and across China. Reading about him and reading his writings became more convicting as it got closer to his arrest. You you do a good job, and I'm not sure what you wrote. And I know it says you edited it. And but how was the the book compiled? And, or, well, actually, let's go back. Let's go back. What brought about your interest in this subject? Good question. Yeah. So I've worked with China for almost 20 years. I first went to China as a college student in 2005 and never thought this was going to be the trajectory of my life, but the Lord has kind of just kept me in it. And so it's a real honor to have been doing this, but yeah. So basically I worked in ministry with Chinese students, both in China and in the U S for a really long time. And then about 10 years ago, I was recruited by an organization that works with house churches across, across or house churches across China. And they basically came to me and said, these guys have so much to say. They have so much to teach us. We really believe that, you know, as much as we are working to help equip them, they have something to say back to us. You know, they have a lot to be teaching those outside of China. And so I always liked to write. And I I think I had like a personal blog, (laughs) but um, I had been working with Chinese for a long time. And so they asked me to start a blog for them. And um, I did. And we had a lot to figure out. It was a really, uh, it took a long time to figure out how to find the right people within China to work with who wanted to write, who wanted to have their thoughts, you know, shared with the rest of the world. And um, we had to start a translation team, which they are the not unsung because I sing their praises all the time, but they are the real heroes of the work because my, no one wants me to translate large materials <laughs> or large quantities of Chinese material. But we have this just incredible translation team and they work really faithfully using their gifts to help bring content out from China. So we we had started this, we'd had some success. and. A mutual contact got in touch with me and said that Wang Yi had compiled this house church manifesto 
And he wanted it to be translated and and shared with those outside of China. I had very little faith at that point. And I thought, I don't know how to do that. And I don't really know, you know, who would be interested in this in terms of publishing. And we kind of had to just sit on it for a while, um, but we kept translating other pieces of his and, and other content from him. And then essentially, you know, after he was arrested, we thought, well, this is just done now. You know, this is not going to go anywhere. But in 2020, we had a conversation with IVP and they were really interested. And so we were able to move ahead with compiling this book. And so how this worked out is I compiled it and I'm the one who wrote the all the introductions to the different sections. And um, my co-editor, JD, is the one who really helped with a lot of most of the footnoting, mm. um, especially concerning points of Chinese history or Chinese culture. And so it was a really good partnership between us to be able to help contextualize this book for a North American audience so that those who don't understand China or know a lot about China can pick it up off the shelf and have what they need, I think, to be able to dive into what Wang Yi is talking about. I think you've done a really good job with that. I mean, I'm not a complete novice. I mean, I've read a little bit. I read David Aikman's Jesus in Beijing and and Brother Yoon's The Heavenly Man. So I, I had some aspect of understanding it. I mean, very limited, but I know probably with our audience, a little bit more familiar familiarity than they themselves had. But I, I thought you did a really good job of bringing that out because I, even when I read Aikman's book, and it's been, I don't know, maybe 20 years, you helped us to see the issues that were at work with the, the three self movement and, and, and bringing out Wong's Wong's writing and why that was important because I remember reading Aikman's book and he was much more sympathetic to it then and people getting involved in it and Wong's not he's not at all sympathetic because he sees it as really a compromise uh you know compromising the gospel at its essence because it's the it's the government that puts itself over Christ rather than Christ being the head of the government and it's restricting their movements. It's appointing pastors for them. They have to be, they're much more skilled in socialism and really interpreting everything through the Bible through this lens. And as, as it went on though, reading his, his words, and it's not just him, you have other writers that are in here too. Jin, Jin Tian Ming, um, pronounce it. Yeah. Jin Tian. Pronounce it for me. <laughs> um. Uh, so it would be Tian Ming, Jin Tian okay. Ming. And then it's kind of like, think of it as like J E E N. Oh, okay. Jean. That's good. Jean. Jean. And then yeah. I see there's, there's one, two, three, four, five other people, I think, that you've cited besides Wong. Uh, these are all yeah. leaders within the house church movement. Yeah. So the first third of the book, that is the manifesto that Wang Yi compiled. And that's his writings with writings from these other pastors in Beijing. And essentially they wouldn't all agree on everything, but they have a lot of consensus between them on the house church's relationship to the state church. And so they worked together to compile this. 
And then this next two thirds of the book are compiled by myself consulting with various people who knew Wang Yi, know Wang Yi, and were able to help say, yeah, these are the most important writings that can be included in this book. So you set it up with the House Church Manifesto. Then the part two is the eschatological church in the city. And he, he does talk about that with, then you move into the arrest in the way of the cross. Why did you develop that thought process that way? Um, well, I think it shows the development of his own thought a good bit. Part of it's just chronological. The manifesto, he compiled that before the next two sections or the material that's in the next two sections. But I think it helps to show how he is increasingly moving from thinking like a lawyer to thinking about things from the perspective of really a pastor and a theologian. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I know I just said, you know, he, he's pretty, he maintains, he's not fighting for rights. One of the things that I find really interesting is in that manifesto in the first third of the book, he actually does have sections where he talks about the need to fight for rights. And, but then by the end of the book, especially in my declaration of faithful disobedience, where the title for the book comes from, he changes that opinion. And he says very strongly, this is not a fight for personal rights. And this is not a fight for the rights of the church even. And so I wanted to show development in his thought and, and how he's, you know, progressed and evolved as a thinker and especially how just his, his understanding of the church and the nature of the church if you want to throw a big word out there, his ecclesiology, how that has really begun to influence his, his ideas on the purpose of the church, this whole question of rights, and how that's just been shaped more and more by his understanding of the church, and especially the, the end destiny of the church, you know, and this question of where are we going? It is a huge theme in his writing. And that's not unique to Wang Yi. I would say that's a huge theme among many pastors who are writing and thinking in, in the house churches today. Um, this question of eschatolog es es <laughs> the eschatological question, eschatology, that, that influences their thoughts so deeply. And, uh, you know, that's an, another big word, but, you know, really all it means is, is the end times, you know, how does our understanding of where we're going influence what we do today and, you know, how we exist as the church today. There's so much that he talks about, like I, I just in the chapter, he says, history is Christ written large. And he says, he talks about dreams and he says here, 10,000 years are too long, so the world is trying to seize the day and the hour. All the dreams of this world have to be fulfilled before death. But Christ's love for us is more than 10,000 years, and he loved us before the common era. The cross has shattered the curse that all the dreams have to be fulfilled, fulfilled before death. I mean, that that that's just like... He's, he's really going after this idea that this world is your home. He's saying no. And he, he, he gets into this. There's one part. Oh, this part, 184. He says, 
I said to him, according to the scripture, he he was talking about the blood of Jesus and this official that was getting ready to arrest him. I think that's what it was going on. And he says, I must tell you that the Communist Party will pass away. All of the powerful emperors and the political powers established by them in Chinese history are part of the cycle. But when the Communist Party passes away, the church will still be there. And this is the part, right? Just, I, I mean, wow. The church will always exist. Why? Because the peace established by the blood of man is short-lived. Only the peace established by the blood of Christ lasts forever. Whether you believe it or not right now, let me ask you, isn't it more agreeable to your conscience and doesn't give you more inner peace? I was like, what? Like, I felt like he, and I know he's writing to the Chinese background. He's writing to the Chinese church, but there was so much, even when he gets into the, how do you say it? Sinization? Yeah, sinus, sinusization. Every word I'm That's mispronouncing, word Hannah. Every word. <laughs> sinus, 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 what? Give me, say it again. Sinusization. Sinusization. So I feel like I'm in Nemo and I'm trying to say sea anemone. Sea anemone. Sinusization. Sinusization. Just skip it. No, Just I need skip it. it. I need to know it. <laughs> Because the, the principle is so important to me. It's really just how this, it's, it's syncretism. It's it's taking Christianity yeah. and making it, it's trying to remove it from a, it, the Western influences that they seem to be attached to it. They see it as a Western religion, Chinese officials do. So they're trying to strip it down and make it so that it's subject, or actually not just subject, but buttressing Chinese cultural values, right? Am I right in that? Okay, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. I see, yeah. what, you know, C.S. Lewis used to talk about chronological snobbery when you, you need to read stuff outside of your own time in order to critique your own cultural moment. I, I think the same is true that there's like a geographical snobbery. Oh, <laughs> you're shaking. OK, tell me, give me you're ready to go. I can tell you're like, a sh- you know, someone to. No, finish your thought because you're you're saying it beautifully. Well, you know, I do. I think that there is this idea that it it's a rebuke to our our current Western cultural moment because you're seeing how the the gospel is played out in the face of hostility, and and I kept looking at it, going, our persecution's not the the hard and fast overt persecution. Ours is the it's it's the difference between being lulled to a spiritual sleep by the carbon monoxide of secularization. You know, it's that slow death. We're addicted more to our comfort. And I'm reading him and I'm reading about his arrest, his wife's arrest. I'm reading about all these elders writing and trying to encourage the church. They knew full well what was going to happen today. And he said, let me see if I can get this quote here. Is he, he talks about, he prays more people would lose their jobs. I mean, he prays more people would suffer. He's like, because they don't want to become like the West. They 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 want not that they're they're asking for this like masochistic like beat me, but it's saying yeah, it, yeah, it's saying yeah. that the more the church is persecuted, the more it's going to grow. The reason he even said the Chinese church right now is in a spiritual lull, and yeah. he's hoping for a greater persecution yeah. to wake him up. And I'm like, yeah, can you imagine? Saying that now in the West? I think one of the really important things that like has to be kept in mind when thinking about that is the growth of the church in China. Because like 
if he says that and there's no like backing up of the fact that the church is still surviving in China, then like it, it's an empty statement, yeah. right? You know, but but like he says that and I know, like, I mean, I know of many churches, many house churches in China who when persecution increased in 2018, when all of the difficulty of like COVID zero has unfolded across China, their response has been to lean into church planting. You know, think about how many churches and church plants we saw fold mm-hmm. in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I ha- I know many churches, you know, I, I have a, a personal friend. Uh, he came to the U.S. for seminary. He went back right before COVID broke out. And his church plant was supposed to launch the week of the Wuhan lockdown. And he didn't know, you know, what to do. They abided by all local restrictions and policies. And a year later on their one year anniversary, they had a hundred people in their church and they baptized 10, <laughs> you know? And I think that's just where I feel like our, under, our, our understanding of how the gospel moves is so small in the U.S., you know, like we limit our understanding of how the gospel grows and how it moves by saying that it has to have openness and it has to have money and it has to have material success in order to be able to say that the gospel is, is free to grow, you know, but like the Chinese that, that I, I know, like they feel like it's, it's the opposite, (laughs) you know, like pressure, pressure is what causes the church to, to go out and to serve in their city and to meet actual needs and to preach the gospel. Pressure is what causes the church to go out. It's never going to be completely safe. It's never going to be easy. There's not going to be some formula or button you punch. No, it's going to be hard. There's going to be pressure. There's going to be suffering, but we go to bless the cities around us. That's an amazing perspective. One I want, and honestly, one I kind of don't want either. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I mean, we have an allergy. Really? I mean, we have an allergy to suffering like some of my children have to peanuts. I don't want to be uncomfortable, but sometimes that might be what God requires. Sometimes the discomfort is the very thing we need to grow. Here in the West... Christianity has held cultural power for a long time, and we all know that's fading. But the new normal hasn't really hit completely yet. No one knows what this new paradigm is going to be. However, we have much to learn from our Chinese brothers and sisters. We have much to learn from the global church to help us to navigate these waters. Because they understand the cost of the gospel in ways that we can't imagine. But we can... We can certainly learn from them. Renewing the church in the West is going to require that we learn from the church in the East, in the global South. And as we're going to hear next week, not because they're super Christians, no, but because they've experienced things that we haven't. They have perspectives that we don't. And maybe, just maybe, can be the jolt we need as we seek to water our world in the coming days and years. 
And next week, we are going to delve further into this conversation about the Chinese house church and Wang Yi. I hope you will join us. But in the meantime, if you have questions, drop us a line on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And would you please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Add a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us get the word out so that we can water the faith of more people. I wanted to thank our Apollos Water team for helping water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.